I'm Elizabeth Rushing, and this is Humanity in War, an ICRC podcast on all things humanitarian law and policy. Since October 7th, the world has witnessed a new and unimaginable wave of tragedy unfold across Israel and the occupied territories. As we pass the two-month mark of this armed conflict, there have been constant changes on a daily basis, impacting civilians minute by minute. At a time that our colleagues on the ground continue to engage in an exceedingly challenging humanitarian context, we're focusing today's discussion on the laws of war and how they apply. Today, I'm joined by Cordula Droga, ICRC's chief legal officer, to discuss how recent developments in Israel and the occupied territories are governed by international humanitarian law and other applicable frameworks. Thank you for joining us today, Cordula. Thank you for having me. So we have received many questions from our audience, especially those online, with regards to the application of international humanitarian law. Could you start us off today by providing an outline of the main bodies of IHL that are relevant to the current situation? Yeah, so international humanitarian law, and as you also just mentioned, they are sometimes called the laws of war, is the set of international rules that regulates the behavior of parties to armed conflicts. Perhaps two important remarks by way of introduction. The first one is that international humanitarian law is separate and independent of the rules of international law that regulate whether the resort to force between states is lawful or not. That's regulated by the UN Charter and and other bodies of law. The separation is because international humanitarian law is meant to protect the victims of all armed conflicts, whichever side they are on. And what it does is it regulates that the ends of a conflict do not justify any means. The means with which you can carry out military operations are limited by international humanitarian law. And second, by way of introduction, international humanitarian law applies to all parties to an armed conflict, whether they be states or non-state armed groups. So having said this, broadly speaking, international humanitarian law does two things. It sets the limits to how military operations can be carried out. So this is what we call usually the rules on the conduct of hostilities, which are these cardinal principles of distinction, proportionality and precaution, which I'm sure many of the listeners have uh, heard. And it also restricts the type of weapons that can be used. And second, it regulates the treatment of people who are in the hands or in the control of the adversary. So, for instance, if they're under occupation or if they're detained by an adverse party. And so at all times, the basic rule of that is that people have to be treated humanely. And within these two broad categories, can I just mention two issues that are regulated in IHL and of particular importance in in many conflicts, including in this conflict uh, in Israel and the occupied territories. And one is uh, there is a very comprehensive set of rules that protect the wounded and sick and healthcare. And there's um, a very important set of rules as well that regulates humanitarian relief operations. Thank you for that helpful background. And we'll come back and unpack a few of those points. First is uh, we've received a lot of questions on that first category, on the rules of, on the conduct of hostilities. You mentioned briefly the principle of distinction. Can you please outline what that means? 
The principle of distinction means that an attacker always has to distinguish between combatants and civilians and between military objectives and civilian objects, so homes, civilian infrastructure, the environment. And it can only ever direct its attacks against combatants and fighters and not against civilians. And it can only target military objectives and not civilian objects. So at all times, the principle of distinction requires the party to take constant care to spare the civilian population and civilian objects from the effects of military operations. And a specific consequence of that is the prohibition of what we call indiscriminate attacks. Indiscriminate attacks are attacks that are not directed at specific military objectives as required or that cannot be directed at specific military objectives or whose effects cannot be contained as required by international humanitarian law. Okay, so please do walk us through this step by step. So first, who counts as a combatant and who is determined to be a fighter and what are the differences between those two? So. Combatants are the members of the armed forces of a party to a conflict, except for religious and medical personnel. So you can have medical personnel of the armed forces, but they're not combatants and they're protected. And the armed forces of a state party consist of the regular armed forces of the party, but also of all the organized armed forces or groups of unit or units which are under a command that's responsible to that party. And for non-state armed groups, Combatants are those whose continuous combat function is to take part in hostilities. So simply said, they're the armed wing of a non-state party to a conflict. And lastly, I think we should also add that sometimes civilians also take a direct part in hostilities. And they do lose their protection against attack if they do so, but only for the time that they do so. Thank you very much. You also mentioned you would only be able to target military objectives and not civilian objects. Could you outline this as well, what is considered a military objective as opposed to civilian objects? And to follow up, can you explain what happens when a civilian object, such as hospitals, are used for military purposes? Mm -hmm. So the definition of military objectives is a little bit cumbersome. It says it's limited to those objects which by their nature or location or purpose or use make an effective contribution to military action and whose partial or total destruction or capture or neutralization in the circumstances ruling at the time offers a definitive military advantage. And so in simple terms, basically typical Military objects by nature will be things like military weapons or tanks, for instance. But civilian objects can exceptionally also turn into military objectives if they're concretely designated for military action. So, for instance, let's say you have a civilian building that's used as a weapons depot. That building will turn into a military objective because it's used for military action. Now, what I should add, perhaps, is that when a part of an object is used, let's say of a large building or of a compound of building, it doesn't yet mean that you can then attack the entire building because you always have to also take all feasible precautions to avoid or at least minimize the loss of civilian homes and civilian lives. And this is the case even if the building is empty of people because destroying the entire building still means that civilians will lose these homes and livelihoods. Thank you. You mentioned there you have to always take all feasible 
precautions. So we're still in the sphere of conduct of hostilities here. Can you take a few moments to illustrate, in addition to the principle of distinction, the principle of proportionality and the principle of precaution? Under the principle of proportionality, attacks are prohibited if they're expected to cause incidental loss of civilian life or injury to civilians or damage to civilian objects, as we mentioned above, which would be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated. So let's let's unpack that uh, a little bit. So the civilian harm that you have to take into account in the principle of proportionality is the death of civilian or injury of civilians or destruction of civilian homes, of civilian infrastructure. And you have to take into account all the civilian harm that can be expected, which means that can be foreseen. And what can be foreseen from a military operation or the harm that can be foreseen from a military operation is not only the immediate effect, so people who will immediately die or, or be injured, but also second and third tier effects. So, for instance, it's entirely foreseeable. Um, let's say you destroy uh, or damage an electricity line, that it's not just a matter of that line being damaged. It's entirely foreseeable that the effect will also be that hospitals or water pumping systems or sewage systems will be affected and that this can lead to further death and injury. And so this civilian harm, if it is foreseeable, must also be taken into account. And in addition, you can also what you can also expect, of course, and the more we know about civilian, you know, in urban settings, the more we can foresee is the expected cumulative effects of incidental harm, particularly of civilian infrastructure and essential services. Because you have, of course, in most essential services that will be damaged, such as electricity, water, etc., you have usually an inbuilt redundancy. So that the first electricity line that's damaged has a you know will create harm but the last electricity line that is damaged will create much more severe civilian consequences because there's no more redundancy to to catch it and then just lastly on the on the proportionality principle if we un- unpack also the military advantage side so because we were saying okay you mustn't have excessive civilian harm in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage and That is really what is concretely and directly anticipated from the particular attack. And you still often hear that this or that civilian harm might be justified to defeat the enemy or to win the war. And that is actually not uh, what is a permissible ground. Because, of course, if, you know, if the equation is about winning the war, then, of course, you're completely undermining the principle of proportionality. So you have to be careful as well about being looking at the concrete and direct military advantage as required by by humanitarian law. Now, in terms of precautions, precautions are all the measures that a party must take, if it is feasible for it, to avoid or at least minimize harm to civilians and civilian objects. So it's a very practical principle in a way. It's the principle of how states and parties to conflicts can actually respect, you know, the obligations of distinction and proportionality. So, for instance, precautions can be to warn the civilian population if an attack is imminent, if that's feasible, or to choose the types and munitions in a way to minimize civilian harm, or to choose your timing of the attack in such a way. 
it also requires parties to constantly verify if they are still targeting a legitimate target and possibly aborting an attack if it's not the case anymore or if they realize that the incidental harm will be excessive. It's also about, for instance, taking into account the movement of people and where they are fleeing to, to constantly monitor where they move and where they are present in order to adjust your attacks. It's also about the choice of objects that you attack. So if you have a choice between several military objectives, for instance, you have to choose the one that will cause the least danger to civilians and civilian objects or even within a larger target, right? The party must aim for the lesser part, if that's feasible, in order to avoid or minimize civilian harm. So it's all these concrete measures that parties have to take in order to avoid and minimize harm. Thank you. I think that's much clearer now with that backdrop of rules. A lot till this part in the discussion has been quite abstract as to where, but if we're talking about a densely populated urban environment, things get trickier and more complex. And that is the case in Gaza, uh, but it's also, of course, the case in other urban environments undergoing armed conflicts, such as those in Ukraine or in Khartoum. So against this very complex backdrop, how can the rules that you've outlined be respected when civilians and fighters are intermingled and in which military objectives are closely located next to civilian objects? Yes. I think the first thing to do is to remember that cities are first and foremost civilian places. They are full of civilians, they are full of civilian homes and hospitals and schools and administrative offices and restaurants. And when there's a doubt whether a civilian home or a civilian building is used for military action, it should be presumed to be civilian. Now, we know at the ICRC from direct observation that the use of explosive weapons with wide area effects in these populated areas, and we've had a podcast on this, of course, continues to be a major cause of civilian harm, of injury and death, but also damage to, to infrastructure. And... Even when services that are indispensable for sustaining civilian life that we just mentioned, hospital infrastructure, sewer system, water systems, are not directly targeted, they are disrupted as an indirect result of these attacks with you know, explosive weapons with wide area effects. And they become more and more degraded over time. And also the effects of explosive weapons with wide area effects continue once the fighting stops. So we have a lot of unexploded ordnance, we have a lot of weapon contamination, and we have this you know, degrading or sometimes entire lack of essential services that also prevents many people who have been displaced by such fighting from returning to their homes. So while there is no general prohibition under international humanitarian law against using such heavy explosive weapons, their use must still comply with the prohibitions against indiscriminate attacks and the pro prohibition of disproportionate attacks that we just mentioned and also the principles of precaution that we can maybe come back to. Um, but because of their low accuracy, because of their lack of precision, because of their large destructive radius, there's a real question about being able to abide by these principles in such urban settings. 
And over the past decades, we uh, at the International Committee of the Red Cross, but also the movement of the Red Cross and Red Crescent has called on states and parties to armed conflict to avoid using such heavy explosive weapons in, in urban in urban settings because of the significant likelihood of indiscriminate attacks and despite the absence of an express legal prohibition for specific types of, of weapons. Now there's recently been in 2022 an adoption of a political declaration recognizing that the use of these explosive weapons in populated areas is a major cause of civilian harms. 83 states have adopted this political declaration and we hope that more states will join the declaration and really set a clear political signal that the human cost of these weapons as they are used today and as we can witness is unacceptable and must change. Thank you. And yes, I do recall the conversation that we had earlier this year about the IWIPA, the explosive weapons in populated areas declaration. And I think that it, we came away with the feeling of there is still hope for multilateral negotiations, which I think we all need to cling to these days as well. With that in mind, uh, turning now to a common question that we often receive from our audiences who are seeing the violations of these rules time and time again, why do we still look to IHL? Why do we still look to international humanitarian law when we do see these violations being committed in so many conflicts? We look to IHL, first of all, because despite what we see on our TV screens every day, and which is unacceptable, IHL has actually saved countless lives over the past century and a half. You know, every time a wounded person, including an enemy soldier or fighter, is being collected and cared for, or every time an ambulance passes through a checkpoint, or humanitarian relief reaches civilians, every time detainees are treated humanely and provided with food and water and medical care, and all this also happens in armed conflict situations. In all those situations, this is due to IHL norms that didn't always exist and are being respected. And over the years, of course, IHL treaties have also banned certain weapons, such as chemical weapons, biological weapons, but also, you know, anti-personnel mines, cluster munitions, and that too has saved countless lives. But secondly, also, I think on a more, if you will, principled <laughs> Uh, level, even if we're facing this uphill struggle to make IHL respected, it's simply the right thing to do, I think. Uh, these rules are how parties should behave, and our role should be to enforce them. Now, that said, of course, we have to be outraged at the widespread disrespect that we see all over the world, and we also have to be outraged at the widespread impunity for violations. But my takeaway from this is... Do we think the prohibition of ill-treatment is wrong because people continue to be ill-treated? Or do we think uh, the prohibition of indiscriminate attacks is wrong because parties to conflicts continue to carry out such attacks? Or do we think, um, you know, the wounded and sick should just be left without medical care? Now, if we don't think so, if we think that these rules are right, then I think our only option is to turn our outrage into action and work towards better implementation and respect. Thank you. And let's talk about one of those very specific responsibilities. What are the requirements from states when it comes to humanitarian relief to civilians in need? And what can some of those actions look like? So it doesn't start with humanitarian relief in the sense that it's first and foremost, of course, for the parties to the conflict to provide for the basic needs of populations under their control. If populations are not provided 
with basics, with the goods essential for their survival, water, food, medical care, etc., then the parties to the conflict and all states must allow and facilitate humanitarian relief that is impartial in nature and is meant for the civilians in need exclusively. And humanitarian relief is, of course, subject to the consent of states. That is clearly stated in international humanitarian law. But, of course, if people are left without goods essential for their survival, then states cannot unlawfully deny that humanitarian relief because, of course, the consequence would be an unlawful consequence. And then once they have given consent and the humanitarian relief schemes are carried out, they are, of course, also subject to what's called the right of control of the parties to the conflicts, meaning that parties to the conflicts can impose such controls that make sure that the relief really reaches the civilian is not diverted for military purposes, for instance. So they can prescribe specific routes, they can, you know, check the consignments, etc. So they can impose these measures of control. But again, they have to impose them in good faith. And measures of control cannot be such that in practice they completely undermine or delay indefinitely humanitarian relief that they can then not reach the civilians in need. Thank you for outlining this. Um, I think that we're living in a time now where most, if not all, of the information that people are getting about this conflict and others is coming from online forums and social media. And sometimes this can be very motivating and incredible, the work of being able to see what's happening in real time. But on the other hand, we're seeing unprecedented levels of misinformation, disinformation, and hate speech. How has MDH impacted our humanitarian operations and people already affected by armed conflict? Yes, that's really a trend that we've seen growing exponentially, I think, around the globe with very uh, inflammatory rhetoric taking over really an information dimension of armed conflicts that is something that many of us are, are grappling with. So, for instance, you see misleading information about what behavior is lawful during armed conflict or not lawful. You see dehumanizing narratives and spread of hate speech that, that really fuel hatred and glorify violence. You see disinformation and harmful narratives relating also to the denial of, of humanitarian action and humanitarian service delivery. And all this can really have a serious impact on the safety and dignity of the populations, of on the affected populations, but also on humanitarian organizations like the ICRC and, and also others. Now, just very briefly, what I will say is that International humanitarian law also sets limits to what people are allowed to do in armed conflict situations. And it also imposes obligations on states to set limits in their jurisdictions. So, for instance, it's prohibited to incite violations of international humanitarian law. It's also prohibited to make threats of violence or to spread terror among the civilian population. And states have obligations and responsibilities in this respect. So... First, they can be legally responsible for misinformation, disinformation or hate speech if it's carried out under their instruction, direction or control. They must also not encourage civilians or groups to act in violation of international humanitarian law. And they have a due diligence obligation to prevent international humanitarian violations 
on or from their territory. And so they have this obligation to enforce international humanitarian law by adopting measures in their jurisdictions to prevent violations, but also to prosecute serious violations. Thank you for outlining that. I think that usually the narrative is around how damaging it is, but it's very rare that you hear about the legal responsibilities related to it as well. So thank you for reminding us of those. I think it's important also to talk about in the context of MDH, something that's under attack quite regularly, which is the ICRC's neutrality as an organization. I think that in-house we all have a very clear understanding of how this is a compass that helps us to allow assist and access all sides of the conflict and an operational tool, and it's a core part of our of our work. How important, in your words, is the ICRC's neutrality in this situation, and why is it crucial for actors to recognize and understand and respect that mandate? Hmm. Indeed. So the International Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement and the ICRC carries out its humanitarian work according to the principles of the movement. And in particular, of course, and the highest one of those is the principle of humanity, but also the principles of neutrality, of in impartiality and independence. And neutrality here is an operating principle that means that we do not take sides between parties to conflicts and we provide assistance based solely on the humanitarian need and that requires for us to talk to all sides to highlight the importance also of respecting international humanitarian law, of uh, allowing us to provide relief. And so for us, neutrality is our way, our method to talk to parties, to build trust, whether governments or armed groups. And without this trust, we can't continue to carry out these life-saving operations. We can't continue to respond to the needs of the affected communities, of detainees, of families of missing uh, persons, of wounded or injured people. And it allows us to have a role of what we call a neutral intermediary role, which is a way to access both the victims of the violent, but also the actors involved. And it also helps us to ensure the safety of our staff and thus carry out these activities in sometimes very precarious situations. So, for instance, in this conflict in Israel and the occupied territory, it has allowed us to function as a neutral intermediary and have a useful role for the parties and in particular for the families in the release of hostages and of detainees on both sides. So... Neutrality is, for us, really essential to carry out our work. It doesn't mean to say that everyone should be neutral in face of a conflict, but there's a space for different modes of action in armed conflict. Different actors have different roles. Um, and there's certainly, in our view, a role for a neutral organization that seeks to do the particular work that we are doing. Thank you. I think, as our colleague Fiona Terry once put it in our blog, we take action, not sides. Quite. I think I, I would really like to keep going, but we'll end it there. Uh, I want to thank you for shedding light on the rules relating to this conflict. I think that in some ways it's very complex, but in other ways, if you really take a step back, a lot of these rules are very intuitive. As you say, it's just about putting the words to doing the right thing. And I think that we all have this in us of what's right and what's wrong. And being able to put rules to it and put laws to it is very important. And I know that you've been working tirelessly 
as many of our colleagues have, to keep reminding all parties to conflicts to abide by those rules. So I thank you for your time in other spheres, but also for joining us today. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode of Humanity in War, be sure to check out the ICRC's Humanitarian Law and Policy blog at blogs.icrc.org slash lawandpolicy, a library of posts, all with audio reads on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. 